In the beginning, there was no poison in the kingdom. The poison had to be smuggled in. It came camouflaged in a golden cup with a long stem in the flavour of fruit. It came not in the hands of a king, but the hands of a prince, the prince of the shadows. The king walked with his children and the children knew their king. There were no secrets, there were no shadows. Then the prince of shadows entered the garden and he had to hide himself. So he came in darkness, completely hidden, only his voice could be heard. Taste it, he whispered, holding the goblet before her. It's sweet with wisdom. The daughter heard the voice and turned. She was intrigued. Her eyes had never seen a shadow. There was something tantalising about his hiddenness. The king watched. The choice is hers, the king said. The choice is hers. The daughter stared at the goblet. She reached out and took the cup and drank the poison. Her eyes never looked up. The venom rushed through her, distorting her vision, scarring her skin and twisting her heart. She ducked into the shadow of the prince. Suddenly, she was lonely. She missed the intimacy she was made to know. Yet rather than return to the king, she chose to lure another away from him. She replenished the goblet and offered it to the sun. Once again, the king said, The choice is his. The daughter placed the goblet into the hands of the son. It's all right, she assured. It's sweet. The son looked at the delight that danced in her eyes. Behind her stood a silhouetted figure. Who's he? he asked. Drink it, she insisted. The voice was husky with desire. The goblet was cold against his lips. The liquid burned his innocence. More? he requested as he ran his finger through the dregs on the bottom and put it to his mouth. The king said, looking on, their choice will be honoured. Where there is poison, there will be death. Where there are goblets, there will be fire. Let it be done. The king hated the shadows because in the shadows the children could not see their king. The king hated the goblets because they made the children forget their father. And outside the garden, the circle of the shadow grew larger and more empty goblets littered the ground. More faces were disfigured. More eyes saw distortedly. More souls were twisted. Purity was forgotten and all the sight, all sight of the king was lost. No one remembered that once there was a kingdom without shadows. We're going to talk about sin this morning, which I realise is not a very popular topic on a Sunday morning when you are faced with a 41 degree temperature. It's not the most riveting subject. So spare a thought for the pastor this morning because it's not a popular topic. But we're not going to focus so much on sin as we're going to focus this morning on forgiveness of sins. And I want to do it against the backdrop of the title of the message. And you will see why it's called that in just a few moments' time. I've called the message the long nose of God. Did you know that God has a long nose? Well, you're about to discover that this morning. The long nose of God. And as I said, we're talking about sin for a little bit, but most importantly, our focus this morning is on forgiveness of sin, which is one of the 
uh, great hallmarks of Psalm 103. And I want to particularly focus, we, we started on this psalm last week and we're taking different sections over a three-week period. I want to focus this morning on verses 3 to 5 and then also if you come down to verse 8 and we're going to be focusing down to verse 12 as we talk about the long nose of God. Let's talk about God and sin for a moment. And to understand God and sin, uh, our sinfulness, we need to understand firstly the character of sin. So have a look at verses 3 to 5 just for a few moments because there are specific words that are used in this passage to describe sin. In verse 3, the word is used, iniquities. That verse also turns up in verse 10. So twice the word iniquities is used. What does iniquities mean? In fact, uh, you'll see that there are five different terms that are used to describe sin in this psalm. The first, as I said, is iniquities. What does iniquities mean? Iniquity simply means to twist or distort something. It means to make something crooked. And so as a result, when you talk about iniquities, twisting or distorting something, uh, it, and referring to crookedness, it refers to crooked behaviour. Distorted behaviour, twisted behaviour. That's what iniquities means. The next word that we come across is diseases. You see it there in verse 4. It, uh, verse 3, he pardons all your iniquities, he heals all your diseases. Now, the word diseases is exactly as you read it. Uh, it's not just being spiritualised away. It's referring to physical diseases. The word is often used for that. But it is also intimately tied in with sin because disease is the consequence of sin. David is not saying that if you are sick, it's because you have sinned. But what it is saying is that sickness and suffering and uh, poor health and all of the things that we struggle with, cancers and all sorts of things, are the result, the consequences of mankind's rebellion, sin. So it's an all-encompassing term. It refers to physical ailments, but it has that spiritual connotation because it's referring to the consequences of sin. So that's the second word. The third word that we come across is the pit. Look in verse 4. It says that God redeems your life from the pit. That simply has two meanings. It can actually refer to the pit of the grave where we put bodies that decompose. Again, the reminder is that's the consequence of sin, death. And so this word, the pit, can refer to the grave, to the notion of the consequence of death, uh, the consequence of sin, which is death. But it can also refer to the pit of hell. The idea that because of sin, we are separated from God, and if we die in our sin, we spend eternity separated from God. So it has that kind of meaning. Either way, it's intimately associated with this word, uh, with this concept of sins. The next word is in verse 10. It's the word that we've heard already on many occasions. In verse 10, it says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Uh, this is probably a term that you're more familiar with. This simply means to miss the mark or to fail to meet expectations. So do you see the, the way in which sin is being characterised here? Now it's a missing of the mark. It's not hitting the target. It's not living up to expectations. And so David uses this term here in verse 10. And then there's our final word, and this is probably the strongest of them all. Notice in verse 12, sin is now referred to as transgressions. Now, as I said, this is probably the strongest of them all. Sin has been described, described as a twisting or a distortion. It's been described as missing the mark. But here, transgressions actually means to rebel or to reject authority or to rebel against the standard. So 
Let me just give you a, a little description here of the character of sin based on what David has used. He's used five different words. And they speak of the acts of sin and they speak also of the consequences of sin. So let's just look at how we summarise sin and its consequences here. Have a look at this statement. To sin is to deviate from or to twist the standard of God. If you jump to the end of the sentence. To sin is to miss or fall short of the standard of God. To sin is to revolt against the standard of God. That's what sin is. Deviations, twistings are iniquities. Missing, falling, short of the mark, that's sins. Revolting against it, transgressions. They're all encompassing terms. And what it implies is that there is a standard and sin either twists the standard or it misses the standard or it rebels against the standard. All encompassing. Here are the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin, as spelled out in Psalm 103, are guilt, broken relationship with God, punishment, sickness, death, eternal separation from God. That's covered by those two phrases, diseases and the pit, which focuses more specifically on the consequences of sin. So here's what I want you to see. When the Bible talks about sin, it doesn't distinguish between the acts and the consequences. When it talks about sin, it's comprehensive and the sin or the acts of sin and the consequences of it go hand in hand. So that is the character of sin. It's to twist or distort the mark. It is to miss the mark. It is to rebel against the mark. God has a standard and sin fails to meet that standard. Now over against this, so that's the character of sin. That's the bad news. Breathe a sigh of relief because we're through it. Here's the great news. Over against that, we have the character of God. The character of God is spelled out for us in verse 8. I want you to go down to Psalm 103, verse 8. Have a look at it. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's the word kesed. We've been talking about that for uh, the past week. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in kesed. Let's look at that word compassionate. It refers to deep, tender love. It's a really strong word and it implies a relationship between the two people. There is a connection. And so this part of God's character, this compassion, is because we are his creatures. He is the creator. There is this intimate connection. And as a result, God has this deep, tender love for us. And it can describe the love between a mother and a child. So there's that real notion of tenderness. And the result of this compassion is mercy. Out of his deep, tender love, God pours his mercy out on us. Here's what I want you to hear. What's interesting about this phrase, compassion? There is no obligation. God is not obligated to show us compassion. It's part of his character. It flows out of him, from him, toward us. The second thing that... David tells us is that God is gracious. This is a heartfelt response. Again, there's that notion of tenderness, of love. And it's a response of the heart to a person in need. But here's the interesting thing, and we, we understand this about grace if we've been Christians for any length of time, that there is no obligation on the part of God to show grace. There is nothing worthy in the one who receives grace. There is nothing that the uh, person can demand. They, cannot, they have no right to expect it. They have no claim on this grace. But nevertheless, this grace, there is no obligation on the part of God. It is something he gives freely. So again, the compassion of God, the grace of God, there's no obligation. 
It flows out of his character. It flows out of who he is. And he meets us at our point of need. Now, here's the really interesting one. It says that God is slow to anger. Now, I want you to break down the passage with me. Have a look firstly at the the word slow. That literally is translated as long. So we could read it, God is long to anger. But here's the interesting thing. The phrase or the word anger literally means nostril or face. And so literally, this phrase, slow to anger, and it's how it reads in the original language, it literally reads long of nose or long of face. So here is what David tells us. The Lord is long of nose. What in the world is David getting at? Why is David telling us that God is long of nose? Think about this. Have you ever noticed when some people get angry, their face gets flushed, it gets red, their nose gets red? said to be burning with anger. You've heard that expression, haven't you? That's being applied here to God. It's saying that when God gets angry, his nose is so long, it takes forever to burn. Isn't that a wonderful thought? We flare up with our anger. We explode with anger. It all rushes to our face and boom, out it comes. It's saying here that God's nose is so long, it takes forever to burn. That's why he's slow to anger. Here's the other reason it refers to the nose. Have you ever heard the expression that his or her nostrils flared with anger? Do you see my nostrils flare then? You can get a close-up later if you want. Or our nostrils dilate with anger. And sometimes when we're really angry, we do something like this. We've done that in anger. Again, applying it to God. God is long of nose. What is it saying? Well, not only is his nose so long that it takes forever to burn, but God, when he's angry, takes a long, deep breath and doesn't explode with anger. And why? Look at verse 8. He's compassionate. He is gracious. He is long of nose. He is abounding in kesed. God takes a long time he withhold to get angry. He withholds his anger. So what is the Bible, what is the Bible telling us about sin and, the, and its relationship between us and God? As I said, the Bible doesn't distinguish between the acts of sin and the consequences of sin. They're intermingled, they're, they're entwined. The acts and the consequences go hand in hand. But here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us that every one of us has twisted and distorted God's standard. Every one of us has missed God's standard, missed the mark of God's standard, failed to live up to expectations. Every one of us has rebelled or revolted against God's standard. I remember years ago, one of Karen's relatives came to church and I was preaching on Ephesians and it was the subject of sin came up and um, his response was, they always talk about sin in church. They always talk about sin. And I get that, but folks... We have to understand, we've got to talk about this stuff from time to time to understand the greatness of what God has done for us and delivered us from it. And so the Bible is telling us, it's it's saying there's, there's no exceptions. Every one of us, those of us who are Christians, those of us who don't know Jesus, every one of us has twisted or distorted God's standard. We've missed God's standard or we've rebelled against God's standard. And often, I don't know about you, often I look at my life and I think, you know, I think my life was pretty good. 
I wasn't a great outrageous sinner. I wasn't out there doing this, that and the other and all this kind of stuff. And that's because we tend to focus a lot on the fact that sin uh, results in actions and the overt actions of what we would call uh, really sinful stuff. But here's the thing. In my saner moments, I say to myself, and I want you to ask yourself this question, have you ever lied? Have you ever dishonoured your parents? Have you ever hated someone that you wished them dead? Have you ever stolen anything? Now, look, I know this is not pleasant. Some of you are probably sitting here feeling uncomfortable for all sorts of reasons. And that's not my... My purpose is not to make you feel deliberately uncomfortable just for the sake of of doing that, but to help you realise every one of us is guilty of sin before God, no matter how good we think we are. And if you really can't come to terms with what I've just said there, read the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus had to say about sin there and how he applied it to the Ten Commandments, because Jesus goes deep. He doesn't just talk about the actions of sin, he talks about the heart. He digs down deep into the heart. So here's the thing, every one of us is guilty. Every one of us has done those things on multiple occasions. And here's what the Bible says. God has the right to punish sin because he's God. God has the right to punish sin. He has the right to inflict on us the consequences of our actions. And you might be sitting there and you might be saying, but that's not fair. I wasn't in the garden. I didn't do it. I I didn't eat the fruit. I wasn't there. And if I was in the garden, it would have been different. Would it? I wasn't there, it's not fair. Well, I want to suggest this to you. You might be saying, I've lived a pretty good life. I want to suggest this to you this morning. I would like to suggest that you have missed God's mark. Maybe you haven't outright rebelled against God, but I would like to suggest that you, every one of us, me included, have missed, has missed God's mark on several occasions. Is that a fair assessment? Or am I dealing with a bunch of really good people? Every one of us has missed God's standard, missed the mark, failed to live up to expectations on multiple occasions. I have missed God's standard more than once. And you're not as good as you think. I certainly am not. In my deluded moments when I think that I'm doing okay. Here's what Jesus said about sin. Here's, here's why. Here's the problem. Jesus said to his disciples, are you so lacking in understanding as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. And he was saying, that which comes out of the person, that is what defiles the person. For from within, out of the hearts of people, come the evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behaviour. And if you think, well, I'm not guilty of any of that, well, listen to this, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. Ever been foolish? It's a pretty comprehensive list. What does Jesus say? He sums it up. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. So in my moments when I think maybe I'm not as bad as I think, I just think back on some of the the things I did in 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 my life. And I share this with you for those of you who think maybe you're just okay, you're good. I think back to when I was about 10 years of age and I was having an argument with a guy in school at the front of the school. I don't know why it took place out the front of the school gates at the end of school, but there was a crowd of people around. And in the course of that discussion, he was winning the discussion. It was, it was an argument. I can't even remember what it was about. We were having an argument, and he was getting the better of me. He was winning the argument, and I didn't like that. So I lashed out, because you see, he had a different skin colour than me. And so I lashed out, and I said, oh, what would you know, Blackie? Why do they do that? 
because there was something within me that was threatened. I didn't like the fact that I was losing the argument, but I knew that by saying those words, I could hurt him and wound him. And that's the deeper thing. Now, I can tell you that story. I'm not proud of that moment. I don't justify that moment. My mother was ashamed of me when she found out because my son went home, my brother went home and dobbed on me. Uh, we've always said that he'll sing like a canary if he ever gets into court, so <laughs> we don't put him on the jury stand or on the, uh, in the judge's box. But I can say, I understand as I look back, I think I'm pretty good. What drove me to do that? My sinful heart. I can tell that story. I'm not proud of it. I can tell that story knowing that I'm forgiven and there is no shame, but it's only because of Jesus. I share that story with you this morning just to help you have a look at your heart if you're thinking to yourself, hey, I'm pretty good. Folks, we're all sinners and we've all got this drive within us to protect ourselves and to make ourselves more likeable and to get uh, the better of people and to wound them. The Bible calls it sin. But here's the wonderful thing. God didn't write us off. God didn't write us off. That's why I love that story that I read to you at the beginning, that goblet that was drunk. God says the choice is hers, the choice is his, but he doesn't write us off. You'll see that in a moment. Right there in the middle of the garden when all of that turmoil is going on, when Adam and Eve is plunging the human race into rebellion against God and we've got all the consequences of that that we live with today, right in the middle of it all, what does God say? Genesis 3.15, he says, I will send a saviour. And the serpent will bruise him for a while, but the saviour will crush the serpent's head. Right there in the midst of it all, God does not write us off. Right there in Genesis 3 verse 15, God says, I have a plan. And I'm working towards that plan. And this is the plan. You see, there are two ways that God can go. The character of God, we know, is holy, but is compassionate. He is merciful, filled with kesed, long of nose. God can go one of two ways with sin, against the character of sin. He could punish it, or he can restore relationship. As you read the Bible, what does the Bible tell you that God chooses? How you answer that depends on, says a lot about your concept of God. Yes, we know he punishes sin, that's, that's true, the consequences there, but what is the story of the Bible? Is it not the story of the creator who is seeking restored relationship with his creation? Isn't that the story? Right there in Genesis 3.15, God chooses restoration. He chooses relationship. And he does it because David says in verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in kesed. I love what uh, my old principal, Doc Gibson, used to say about this concept of God's long-suffering. He said that there are polar opposites. On the one hand, he said, you've got the anger of God at sin on this polar here. But on this pole here, you've got God's kesed, his unswerving, steadfast, loyal love. And God could go this way to punish sin or he could restore relationship. And what keeps them separated is the long-suffering of God. The fact that God is long of nose and pursues and seeks relationship with us. So here's what God's forgiveness does. We are pardoned. It says in verse 3, the word simply means forgive. But do you know what's interesting about this word? It is never used of human forgiveness. This word pardon is never used 
in, this, in the Old Testament to refer to human forgiveness. It is exclusively the forgiveness of God. And it signals that God is ready to forgive. Whether that sin is deliberate or sins of ignorance, people might be reluctant to forgive, but God is not. He is ready to forgive sin. Our sins are pardoned. Our diseases are healed. I said that that's referring to physical diseases and the healing is referring to physical healing but you have to understand the spiritual nature of what David is getting at here it's not just physical healing but it's the healing of restored relationship that is also built into this word and so God heals our relationship with him he redeems us look at verse four this is a great word he redeems your life from the pit in the ancient Jewish culture they had the concept of the kinsman redeemer the kinsman redeemer was the, the near relative. And so if a relative of yours was forced to sell themselves into slavery to pay their debts, or if they had to sell the ancestral land in order to pay their debts, they would uh, sell the land and then they would make the debt to the person. But the nearest relative would come along and had the right of redemption. They had the responsibility, the privilege. The privilege of being the redeemer was considered to be a privilege and a responsibility. And so the nearest relative would step in and would say, I will pay the price for the debt. I will buy back the ancestral land. I will buy back my relative from slavery and I will set them free. And that's the idea here of Jesus or God being our kinsman redeemer. He's our near relative and we've been plunged into sin and we have a debt that we cannot pay. And Jesus steps in as the kinsman redeemer. He takes the privilege, the responsibility, and he redeems us. He sets us free from sin. So we are pardoned, we are healed, we are redeemed, we are set free. And all of this means that our forgiveness is complete and total. Have a look at verse 9. We don't have to spend long on this. They're just, the, the verses speak for themselves. Look at verse 9. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Do you know what that word strive means? It's a legal word. It means to stand up in court and to make a judgment. And so what is being said here, this is what David is saying. When it says God will not always strive with us in our sins, it's a positive. It's saying that God will not always accuse us of our sin. God will not always pass judgment on us. He's not there to accuse. He's not there to condemn. It says that he's, he will not keep his anger forever. He will not constantly accuse us is how one a Bible version translates it. That's all built into verse 9. Look at verse 10. Simple. It's straightforward. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. What does it say? When God forgives, he doesn't treat us as we deserve. It's that simple. And verse 12. This is a wonderful, wonderful picture. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The scientists tell us that if you walk north, eventually you'll hit the point, the North Pole, where the poles meet and you'll start walking south. But when you head east, you all, uh, whatever direction east is, but when you head east, you're always heading east. When you head west, you're always heading west. The two never meet. Do you see what he's saying? As far as the east is from the west, they never meet. So far has he removed our sin from us. Our sin is completely removed and that word removed has the idea of being moved far away it's unreachable why because in verse 4 david says he has crowned you with loving kindness and compassion 
I just want to look at that very briefly. How, how have we been crowned with God's kessed? Because that's what has happened. Well, in Christ, this is what God has done for us. We have been adopted. We've been brought into the family of God. We are now his children. God is now our father. Galatians 4 verse 5 says that in Christ, because of what Christ did for us, we have received the adoption as sons and daughters of God. We are in relationship with him as our father. Here's what one author said, that our relationship with God and his attitude towards us and sin depends on parental love. God responds to your cry with the intense love and care of a parent and you can go to God with the confidence of receiving his attention and love. We are adopted because of the kesed of God. We have access. This is a brilliant thought. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about the fact that Christ is our peace and as a result of his sacrifice, we have peace with God and we have peace with each other. Jew and Gentile are brought together and the dividing wall is broken down. Ephesians 2 verse 18 says this, this access. It says, through Christ we have access to our Father. In the days in which Paul lived and in preceding days, no one could just walk into the throne room of the king and expect an audience. You had to have special access. And this is what... Uh, Paul wants us to understand that in Christ, through forgiveness, through the shedding of his blood, through the covering of our sin, we have an audience with God because we have access through the Son. It's a powerful, powerful concept. So here are the practicalities. Don't, if you're struggling with sin right now, don't leave this morning struggling with shame and guilt. Listen to some of these magnificent verses in Scripture. Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions. The idea there was that in the ancient world when you wrote on the scroll and you made a mistake, you would take a sponge and you would completely wipe out the mistake and it was gone forever. That's the picture that Isaiah uses. Speaking of the Lord, he says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7 verse 19, once again you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. I love Corrie Ten Boom's illustration. She said God takes all of our sin when we're forgiven and he drops it into the deepest part of the ocean and he hangs up a sign that says no fishing. Beautiful picture, straight out of scripture. In Romans chapter 4, the apostle Paul says that our sins are covered because of Jesus and the Lord has cleared our record of sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that we are to celebrate the new creation that we all are in Christ because the old has gone, the new is here. And a couple of verses further on, he says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Don't leave here today carrying shame and guilt. If you need to do business with God, if you need to seek forgiveness, if you have to confess sin, do that. But don't leave and live with shame and guilt. As I just said, it's not automatic. You don't just presume upon this. The Bible says if we, if we confess our sins, we must confess our sin. We must repent from it, turn from it. But what does it say? God will cover the sin. He will forgive you of the sin. It will be completely dealt with. The moment you trusted Christ, all your sin, past, present and future, was dealt with. It is total. It is complete. But you must come to God in confession and repentance. It's pretty simple, really. 
And this might sound a little bit crude, but it's a pretty good deal. Because we don't have to do it, because we can't do it. It's all been done for us. Let me say this about God's forgiveness. It changes how we treat God. I talk to people from time to time who have plunged themselves into some awful sin and bad behaviour, and they say things like, I don't know why God is allowing this. Let me just tell you this. God is not allowing it. You got yourself into that mess. It's not God's fault, so don't blame him. But thank him for his forgiveness and receive it. And God's forgiveness changes how we treat each other. Because we now treat each other with grace. We no longer judge people by their sin or by their past or by their behaviour. But where there is confession, where there is repentance, where there is restoration, we welcome people in with the same grace that we've been welcomed with. So here's how I conclude. The very sight of the goblet angered the prince who was the son of the king. And as the king's son, he swore, I will taste the poison, for this I have come. Prior to that, the son went for one last encounter with his father and he met him in another garden. Does it have to be this way, father? It does, son. Is there no one else who can do it? The king swallowed, none but you. Do I have to drink from the cup? Yes, my child, the same cup. The son looked up into his father's eyes and said, then let it be done. The time has come, said the king. Here is the cup, my son, the cup of sorrows, the cup of sin. Plunge the tree into the earth, plunge it deep into the heart of humanity. Here is the cup, my son, drink it alone. God must have wept as he performed his task. Every lie, every lure, every act done in shadows was in that cup. Slowly, hideously, they were absorbed into the body of the Son, the final act of incarnation. And that is why we can sing this closing song. Our team's going to come and lead us in it. Calvary covers it all. My sin and shame don't count anymore. All praise to the one who has ransomed my soul. Calvary covers it all. We're going to sing that. I'm going to pray. And if you'd like to come and talk, if there's something you need to confess or seek forgiveness for, I'm happy to chat with you after the service. We can do that privately. We don't have to make a big show of that in front of people. Or maybe there's someone you feel more comfortable talking with. But please can I encourage you this morning, if you have to unburden yourself of you seeking strength or encouragement, Take the time to do that. Reflect, even if it's just to reflect in your seat this morning and and do business with God. Do that before you leave here this morning. Let's pray. Loving Father, I simply want to say thank you to you this morning for your son Jesus who drank the cup of sorrow and sin. The very cup that we use to rebel against you. He has drained it in full and paid the penalty for our sin. And as we have heard this morning, because you are long of nose, because you are slow to anger, because you seek relationship, because you want us to be right with you. When we confess, when we repent, our sin is covered, our sin is dropped into the deepest part of the ocean. Our sin is wiped away, you remember it no more, our debt is cleared, you do not hold the record against us any longer. 
Thank you for the freedom and joy of forgiveness this morning. Thank you that Calvary covers it all. Amen.